Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. For most of us, our paths in ophthalmology and really life in general are driven by a series of events, some fortunate and some not so fortunate. We all inevitably hit those bumps in the road, but sometimes the events we perceive as unfortunate turn out to be quite fortuitous in the end. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, Dr. Arthur Cummings takes us on his fascinating journey, starting in urology, migrating to retina, and landing in refractive surgery. Hear what makes Arthur tick, how he feels about his home country of South Africa, what he loves about Ireland, and what excites him most about ophthalmology today. Here we go. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I have Dr. Arthur Cummings with me today from Dublin, Ireland, and it's a real pleasure to get to know you today, Arthur, and hear a little bit about your backstory, about what you think is interesting about ophthalmology, perhaps in Europe and maybe a global perspective. And also just to hear a little bit about what makes you tick and the things you love about ophthalmology. Um, and just, I think it's really interesting, as we were talking before this, a lot of the great wisdom and the great conversations happen in the back hallways of meetings. And that's really where I feel like um, people who don't get a chance to go to meetings maybe miss out a little bit. So I, ho- I was just hoping today maybe we could have a conversation just like we were at a meeting. and. Um, you really talk about the things in our practice that that we love, maybe some new products that are coming down the pipeline, and really just get to know each other a little bit and and find out uh, the state of ophthalmology uh, from a global perspective. So with that being said, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Gary. Very nice to meet you, and thank you for the invitation. So um, as I have been doing a little bit of research, I know that you started in South Africa. Is that correct? Is that That's so exactly true? right. Okay. Yes. My goodness. And so tell me a little bit about your journey growing up and how you ended up in Dublin from, from, from South Africa. So I did medicine in South Africa. And um, in South Africa, we were conscripted to go to the army. So at the end of our medical training, I went to the army. And then you'd spend a year sort of in really heavy duty, and then you'd spend a year in a military hospital somewhere. And I started working in urology, and my best friend that I knew from swimming days at high school, he was doing ophthalmology, and we'd been close friends all our lives. And he was in ophthalmology, and he knew me really well, and he said to me, um, take time out, but come spend a day with me. And we only got seven days leave at that time, and I took a day out, and that was the best day out I'd, I'd spent. So really, really good investment and fell in love with it immediately. Gave up the position I had in urology. I sort of set up something to go, in, to go to a residency and had to wait four years then to get into ophthalmology. So it was an eight-year training program. But yeah, the best decision of my life. So you put your career on hold for four years in order to get into ophthalmology residency? Yes, but worked in ophthalmology as what they call a medical officer. So okay. you did cataracts and you did a few things and you were involved, but your time wasn't counting. Wow, that we feel like in the U.S. we have a, a hard go, but it sounds like that it could be a really um, almost an indefinite waiting period for some. Yes, it could be. Sometimes it never happens. So in South Africa, the training would typically be four years and waiting two or three years to get onto a program. My son is doing his training as an ophthalmologist in Ireland now, and their program is a seven or eight year run through program. So they start knowing it's going to be seven years before they finish. 
And is that combined with medical school, or is that after medical that's school? That's after medical school. Wow. After the wow. internship. Wow, that's, that's incredible. So you finished your training in ophthalmology in South Africa, and did you practice in South Africa for a bit? Or I was did. It? I did. I had done a retinal fellowship. So I was trained as a retinal surgeon. I was doing a lot of retinal surgery, a lot of LASIK, and a lot of uh, cataract. And what I would do on an annual basis is spend some time abroad in retina clinics, seeing how we could improve retina. You know, we sort of thought we were doing a lot of cataracts and how much could you improve that is what we thought. And we were doing a lot of LASIK at that time too. So again, we thought it's a simple procedure and we don't really need to try and improve it further. Obviously, we were wrong on both those counts. But one year in 1997, spent a month in the UK in Moorfields and um, doing retina. And the family had come with, and we just realized this is a place you could live. You know, South Africans think they've got a monopoly on good weather. <laughs> and that year was the best, it's the best summer in... UK history for I think 30 years, the wow. summer of 97. Okay. And lo and behold, six weeks later, I saw an advertisement in a medical journal in South Africa for, you know, for a fellowship in Dublin in refractive surgery. And I sort of thought that Dublin would be the same as the UK, but it was completely different. <laughs> and we went for 18 months, fell in love and never came back. Never came back. Yeah. So, so you're a former urology trainee, a former retina surgeon, uh, fellowship trained, uh, perhaps the through the one of the longest residency periods, if you want to count, and then you did a refractive fellowship on top of that and landed on your feet in Dublin in the in the end of the 90s. Is that about right? That's exactly right. In 98, and then something further happened. It's interesting how careers are. Uh, we all think we work hard and we all think we're smart, but they're shaped more by luck and serendipity and you know circumstances. So what happened is when I got to Ireland, is I was told clearly that I wouldn't be doing any retina. And I was quite happy with that because I was doing a lot of retina. My back and my neck were getting sore. Okay. <laughs> and I wanted to spend some time at home again in the evenings. Right. So that was the first thing. So now it was just cataract and refractive. And then to my dismay, I couldn't get operating rights in our hospital for 80 years for cataract, which meant we now had the decision to go back to a very comprehensive practice in South Africa. I had eight partners at that point. They're now 27 or something. They're a big group. Um, or do I stay? and wait to get cataract operating rights, but in the meantime, just try and take LASIK to the best that I could take it. And so, because the family was so happy there, we decided to stay. And yeah, it was eight years before we got operating rights. But again, that turned out quite interestingly, because having spent all of my time doing refractive, you develop this refractive mindset. That's right. So from the first moment that I did a cataract again, I'd forgotten what cataract surgery was. This was just refractive surgery to me. And so that really drove a lot of my further career is thinking of cataract surgery from way back when as a refractive procedure. So I think that's that's so interesting. And I sort of have a personal philosophy that I see play out time and time again in different people's stories in their life. And I call it the competitive disadvantage. And if you read Malcolm Gladwell or some other popular um, authors, you find that there are people who have something that happens to them that could be taken in a negative direction. So. The fact that you had to wait four years before you could get into a residency and then to go all the way to Dublin and move your family and then for someone to tell you that you can't get operating rights for no good reason. And so you would think about that as just um, almost devastating at the end of so much investment and training uh, to become an ophthalmologist and just for no good reason to, to be restricted from having rights to do cataract surgery. But yet, instead of, you know, sort of self-pitying yourself and, and um, getting down about the situation, you said, no, I'm going to make the best of the situation. And what a career that's turned into where you really honed your refractive skills 
and probably not even realizing the dividends that would pay later on in your career. Absolutely. I think you've summarized it so well. I think, you know, it's always good to keep perspective. And even though that might have looked like a challenge, there are people facing bigger challenges on an hourly basis. That's right. So in perspective, you know what, it's still a good position to be in and just, yeah, figure out the best path. Were there times that you doubted yourself throughout, um, that you doubted the path? Because it, it had to be a little bit rough. And it sounds like you have, um, you have a family that went through this process with you. And um, just a little bit of my background, I had um, got married right after college. We had both of our children in medical school. And so we were trying to raise a family during medical school and had young children through residency. And so I'm, I kind of have a little bit of a peek into what it's like to go through training with a family. But, you know, that's our, that's our number one job. All the other things we do is really secondary to keeping the family unit together. Were there times that you kind of questioned your decision or, or were you always really um, just pressing forward? You know, when we made the decision to move to Ireland, we had so long ago that I had a black and white Acer laptop and on a holiday, put together the spreadsheet and I'm quite impressed that I could do it those days. And I put together a differential list of the important things to us and, and weighted them. And Ireland only won by something like 53 to 47. So it was a really close call because we had a lot of ties in South Africa and family and friends and everything. We'd spent our lives there. Um, I played sport for South Africa. So I'm really a committed South African. And decided to go. And I think what changed things for us, what really helped us get through it. I mean, my wife was busy with a PhD then. She'd started a cochlear implant program in South Africa, in Pretoria. And she had to give that up for the fellowship. Um, and, but when we made the decision to go, it was never about us. It was always about our sons and about thinking we'd provide them a better future. And um, unfortunately, for the moment, it seems like we made the right decision. So, you right. know, it's, things are quite tricky in South Africa and it's, it's not well known. The media doesn't cover South Africa much anymore. But life is tough in South Africa. And Let, let's dig into that. I mean, I think this conversation transcends ophthalmology. What do you wish that people would know about your country that you clearly love? But it sounds like obviously there's complicated history with civil rights in the U.S. There's a complicated history with civil rights around the world. It seems like in some ways it's even getting more complica complicated right now. What do you wish that people would know about your home country that they maybe don't know? I think, as you said correctly, the history is very, very checkered and very difficult, and you can totally understand the, the hatred on, on some sides of the spectrum. And I think we had an amazing miracle come along in, in Nelson Mandela. Absolutely. And he really brought people together. And we became what was called the Rainbow Nation. And I think it was a very good path at that point, a very good trajectory. Um, but I think what happened is, unfortunately, any of these movements don't change people's lives in the space of, of a few years. It's normally a few generations. And I think many promises were made to disenfranchised people and just got to a point where um, there was really more racial issues than I've ever seen. There's a lot of goodwill, obviously. It only takes a small percentage of people who really committed to bring the, the process down to make life uncomfortable and dangerous for people. So I think that's the one thing is when you think about South Africa now, you think about great weather, beautiful country, and a rainbow nation. But I think what's not known is the, the quality of life at the moment for many South Africans is, is poorer than prior to Mandela's becoming president. And I think um, on the, the security side, is both black people and white people in the entire spectrum, also far less secure than they've ever been. So that's sad, that's really sad. So it sounds like there's um, uncertainty 
and it's hard to build a future in a country where there's uncertainty and, and safety issues and, and uh, not knowing sort of what the next day is going to hold. Yes, there is, and it's, it's difficult. It makes, you know, it makes you hardy in many respects. It also creates a sense of humor. Right. So South Africans have an amazing sense of humor. And I think that's why we, why we enjoy Ireland so much, because they also have a great sense of humor. Yeah, I trained with um, an, a, a, a gentleman from Ireland, Peter Timoney. So, Peter, if you're listening to the podcast, I uh, just want to say hi. Um, I don't think I've laughed as much around any other person than Peter Timoney. We were always laughing. We, we, we had to be serious from time to time in training, um, but it was so fun to go through training with an Irishman. And uh, so as we kind of were talking earlier too, any funny stories that come to mind through either, you know, this crazy journey you've been on, anything stand out? We've had some crazy, crazy stories. So many I can't tell you. I'm trying to think of, of one that would resonate from a medical point of view. Is I was doing urology. And we were in one of the, the rural hospitals. And in fact, I studied students, but we were doing our block of urology. And someone had taught us how to do a PR examination, Right. the urologist. And he said, right. well, this is how you do it. You have to insert your finger, you got a glove on, and it's going to feel, the prostate will feel something like the tip of your nose. So everyone's feeling their nose to feel what it feels like. And he said, I'll be back in half an hour. You guys all examine this patient and come back and, you know, I'll come back and see wait, what Wait, 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 just for perspective, how many students were in the room? Well, I'm telling you now, at least five or six. Oh so this is, this is Africa. Right, okay. okay, yeah. So at the end of it all, he came back and said, well, what did you feel? And we all genuinely said, well, we sort of felt like the tip of our nose. So we figured this is a normal prostate. And he looked in his chart and he said, no, 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 you guys didn't, you guys didn't do the examination. We said, we promised we did. And he said to the patient, he said, what's wrong with you? And the patient said, nothing. I came to visit my brother. <laughs> I just came to visit my brother. So, <laughs> so he just, wrong place, wrong time? Yeah, exactly right. There you go. Wow. Sometimes it's the right place at the right time, and sometimes it's the exact opposite. Oh, my yeah. goodness. That, so is un- of- <laughs> that is unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, it's those, there's, there, are, there are a lot of stories throughout training, especially in med school and, and internship. And I won't, I won't share to, to any of those right now, maybe for another uh, podcast. But um, So it sounds like throughout your training process and throughout this sort of uh, evolution of your career, you focused on the bigger why. And that bigger why was you wanted to provide a future for your sons. You have, how many, tell me about your, your children. So but two sons, and they were nine and five when we landed up in Ireland. And Brennan's the oldest. He's now 27, and he's doing ophthalmology. He's been going for seven, eight months and loving it. Congratulations. Thank you very that's much. A, that's huge. Uh, he's a super guy. He's, he's got an interesting story one day. He, before he started medicine, he went to China to teach English, just really? have a different experience, and met his wife, a lady really? who'd never heard English. Really? And, yeah, today they're happily married and have a fabulous a fabulous couple. Wonderful. And the younger son, he spent six years in the States. He finished high school in the States at school, playing golf at a golf academy. And then he, he secured himself a scholarship at UNC in Chapel Hill on the golf team. And he's just returned back to Ireland. So my wife, both of, both of us are delighted to have him back at home again. That's wonderful. For the next couple of years, I guess. And then he'll be, he'll be doing his own thing, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. So both of them, interestingly, both of them, have on a number of occasions, totally unsolicited and unprompted, said, Mom and Dad, we're so grateful you, you brought us to Ireland. So I think it's just expanded the world for us. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think when you can focus on the bigger why, 
there's almost no pain that you wouldn't go through yourself, um, especially when you're thinking about providing a better future for your family, for your children. Um, I've heard so many stories, you know, and um, I think that resonates uh, with me definitely. So let's let's shift gears a little bit. Um, we in the U.S. I think unfortunately have a view that um, we're the best ophthalmologists, although. It's a very myopic view, and um, I think it's unfortunate that maybe in a lot of ways Americans have this um, sense that we're the best, for, and probably for no good reason. What's really funny is I've, as I've interacted with um, a number of ophthalmologists from around the world, um, I've been supremely humbled um, at learning uh, the deficits in, in my skill set compared to what others are doing. Um, what the deficits are in my tool bag in terms of the laser technology, the lens technology, et cetera. And actually, I've kind of come uh, 180 degrees and sort of uh, think, you know, we have got things so maybe perhaps so backwards in the U.S. and have so much to learn from our uh, international colleagues. And uh, Eric Mertens was on the program um, a, a few times ago, and which was just so impressed learning um, what he does in his practice. So that's really what I'd like to know about your practice today. When you look at the global landscape, um, you probably have a very uh, different perspective than I would have because of your experience. What do you see are the main differences from your local market versus uh, what you see going on in the US? I think your perspective is interesting, but I think if you ask 10 people, you probably get 10 different perspectives. So I think we all have a certain bandwidth. And in South Africa, we, it was just service delivery. So I did thousands of cataracts in my training. I did 200 retinas in my training. Wow. Um, but not always been taught exactly the right way. Because wherever year, if you look at the quality of your top units, they are, they're absolutely world class. So you get different things from different um, experiences. And one of the things that keeps me focused is the fact that I go to meetings and I see 70-year-olds who I think are completely accomplished and can't learn anymore, yet they're at the meetings. Asking questions. Yeah. yeah. So we continue to learn. It's, a, it's an evolving process. And you, the day you think you know everything is the day you probably should retire. That's right. You know? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So I think it's a continual learning process. I think the big difference, as I see, is that because of the, the regulatory process in the U.S., you know, things take a lot longer to get you. And many of the technologies we use originate here. Right. They leave the U.S. shores to go to Europe and other parts of the world for their first in human experience. And then they come back here eventually and then go through the FDA process, which sometimes is years later. So something I do a lot of is topography-guided LASIK, and we did that for the first time in 2004. So, so that's old news. Yeah, very. <laughs> and it was approved now, you know, a year ago. Yes, when it went through the FDA process, we all learned something again. So there's a lot to be said for the, the rigor of the FDA process. I think it really highlights things and highlights benefits and, and where the, sh the shortcomings are in a way that, that we don't have in the rest of the world. Um, so I think at the end of it, the fact that the systems are different probably help us all become better ophthalmologists. That's, that, that, I've, that is a perspective that I've never heard before, but it makes a lot of sense that maybe that because of the slowdown of the FDA, you sort of get a second bite at the apple to reevaluate a technology and learn maybe better ways to apply the technology even after you've been doing it for a decade or so. You might say, oh, you know, there's some data now and this is a rigorous process. And uh, I've, actually, it makes a lot of sense, but I've never heard that perspective before. And I appreciate you sharing that. 
So let's talk a little bit about the pipeline. That's something I always love talking about with my European colleagues. What, what things are you doing right now that maybe are kind of in the pipeline in the U.S.? Um, or things that we all see in the pipeline that you are excited about. So I, I guess it's really, you can take it in either direction, um, but what products are you most excited about right now? Yeah, there are a lot of products that are exciting at the moment. You know, ophthalmology is probably the most exciting specialty there is. And right now, to be an ophthalmologist, I don't think there's been a better time. I agree. So there's so much going for us to give better outcomes. And I think one of the tricky things is, I don't know if you've ever seen the podcast or the, the TED talk on the paradox of choice. Yeah. And when you have so much choice, things become more difficult. So it's trying to keep perspective there. But I think what keeps me most excited is um, I was never a big user of multifocals, really. I just, really? No, not in a big way. When did, you, when did that change for you? Or has that changed? It has changed slightly. I think one of the reasons I wasn't is because Monovision works so well. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a really unique way, not unique, but it's a lot of people haven't heard the way I assess Monovision patients. And the success rate is very, very high, the quality of vision. So that's a go-to. And whatever people don't like about Monovision, you can correct with spectacles. So let's, you know, yeah, let's, let, I want to unpack that a little bit more. That might be even more interesting than where you're going with that. I want to hear, what, what, how do you, just out of curiosity, how do you approach Monovision? Right, so the first thing we would do is try and determine dominance. And normally in terms of dominance, it's not motor dominance, which is what we taught to do, it's sensory dominance. Mm -hmm. So which eye do you feel more comfortable with as the lead eye? That's the first thing. And then the second thing would be is once you've fully corrected the patient, to put up a stereo chart. And then in front of the, the eye you've chosen as the, the reading eye, to start defocusing in quarter opto increments. So on an auto for opto. So plus a half, plus 075, plus one, plus one to five. And the moment the patient says, I've lost the stereo target, I'm no longer seeing stereo, you click it one back. And so there you determine the level at which your patient's going to have diffusion, stereo acuity for distance. You don't have it for near, obviously, but you do for distance. So it means these patients have zero trouble driving at night. They, have, they go to 3D movies and have no problem seeing the movie. They simply never, ever complain about their distance vision. So, so, yeah, so what do you find, and I'll tell you, in my experience, um, Jay McDonald is one of my heroes. He has done so much research, and he actually came on a podcast earlier on and gave his breakdown of monovision, and we were kind of talking about monovision versus multifocals, and so that's an area that I'm still very, very interested in. But he taught me that if you keep the defocus at about minus 1.25 in the non-dominant eye to minus 1.5, that, in his experience, was sort of the sweet spot for monovision. When you're doing the defocus at the four-opter, what did you find? Much the same. There's a very, very large variation. Okay. You get some patients who, within a half diopter of defocus on the non-dominant eye, are unhappy. They've lost stereo already. Then you get some who can go to two diopters of defocus, and they still got stereo. What so do you think explains thing. that? Oh, it's the way your brain's processed vision and the way you learned vision. You know, your first seven, eight years of life when you were right. learning how to process vision, it's, it's those experiences. Now, have you done that with multifocality or extended depth of focus and picking lenses based on the disparity that a patient can tolerate perhaps. I know it's different because we're talking about you know the ads at different levels and, this, and focusing on the retina, but do you have any unique ways that you're picking uh, different types of multifocals? No. So Gary, I just want to come back to you asked what happened with multifocals. So multifocal, my uptake has increased because we've started using trifocals and incredibly the trifocals are giving a better visual performance and less dysphotopsia. So trifocals, I think, are, are going to start competing with 
with, with Monovision for me. What's interesting about accommodating IOLs is you would have thought that at this point in time, they would have surpassed multifocals. But their biggest competition currently is how good the trifocals are becoming. Right. So they've got to get better and better and better to compete with the trifocals. As far as trying to figure out which lens to, to use, um, it's just a long conversation. It's a lot of work. It's often a contact lens trial for multifocality. If someone doesn't like monovision, to put in multifocal contacts, you don't get the same array of, of different um, defocus curves with contact lenses as you do with, with IOLs. So someone who you might have spoken to on the program before, Michael Morochen, has an interesting project he's working on where he's helping patients create their own defocus curves. So you wear a little monitor on your spectacles, and if you don't wear spectacles, you wear a pair of spectacles for a day without, without lenses. And this monitor measures the working distance that you're looking at, the tilt of your head, the, um, the light conditions, and at the end of the day, it gives you a very, very good personal defocus curve. So once you can see how a patient's operating in their environment, so I often ask a patient, come sit behind my desk and show me where the computer is for you. It's not his own place. At home, he'll say, well, you know what, I'm actually quite, I'm closer or I'd work on further, whatever the case may be. So now you get real data that supports that person's visual behavior. And I think the idea there is going to be that you can look at your personal defocus curve and then see which technology, we have so many today, right. best fits. Right. And so that's just using more data to, to drive it. I think that's so interesting because we have such sophistication in terms of diagnostic tools, lenses, um, obviously surgical equipment. The lacking piece of that puzzle might be the real world data and it's an unmet need that we didn't even know we didn't ha have perhaps. And um, yeah, you're right. Mike, Michael is uh, fantastic and you know, I don't think we've met personally, but I know him by reputation and um, I, that actually sounds very exciting. So I think that's something that um, as ophthalmologists, we could we could all sink our teeth into. So, you know, I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of perspective on your training, on your family. Um, we're all rooting for your son to, uh, you know, join you someday perhaps or make his own impact in ophthalmology. Um, and before we wrap up, you know, any parting thoughts on um, the state of the industry, maybe things that you think industry is getting right, um, maybe areas that um, industry is getting wrong, or any other parting thoughts you'd have. Now, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, yeah, I think industry and ophthalmologists have never been better aligned. I think the leadership currently, in especially in the big corporates, but also the smaller startup companies, have got a lot of understanding of what ophthalmology means and what it means to our patients. So we're very well aligned. I think what I'm seeing that I like a lot is not that long ago, if something wasn't invented within the company, it wasn't worth their time. And now you hear people on the podium speaking about um, skunk works. They speak about buying startups that they like the look of. So I think that's very, very good when you're agnostic to where the technology comes from. But the, the moment you determine that it has value, that you then want to bring that to your, your patient base. So I think that's really good. And I think, as I say, it's been a long time since I've been so excited by the leadership in ophthalmology and our industry. Well, Arthur, I think that's a great place to leave it. I totally uh, echo your sentiments. And uh, you have an open invitation. Anytime you want to come on and uh, if you've got something you'd like to share with us, um, I've learned so much. I know that, that uh, everyone listening is going to just absolutely love uh, hearing your perspectives, not only this time, but hopefully many more times in the future. So thanks again. Thank you, Gary. Right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks.
As evidenced by Arthur's story, sometimes the seemingly sour events yield the sweetest outcomes. Often, it takes an ability to find that silver lining to make this happen. At the end of the day, without delays in his residency, the tough decision to relocate his family, and difficulties obtaining surgical privileges, Arthur may not be the fantastic ophthalmologist and father he is today. The kind that inspires us all, including his son, to find gratitude in the ability to help people achieve the vision they deserve, no matter what challenges we face along the way. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. For more episodes like this, visit itube.net slash podcasts. And please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. As always, thanks for listening. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.